As we begin, uh, due to the nature of the series that we're working through, we're looking at a variety of different texts. I've tried to limit it the best I could, uh, but there's only so much I can do when we're looking at a topic like this. And so I have tried to write those texts up on the board if you feel bewildered. Um, so feel free to just listen as I read them, but it's always helpful to see it. Uh, so those will be there if you can read them. I realize Benny hoards the good markers. Um, which he offered when I was done. Thank you. Uh, So you may have to squint and you can thank Benny for that. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. welcome. Uh, So all throughout high school and college, I worked as as a painter. My dad built houses, built houses, and so he would get me the glorious, glamorous job of painting new construction. And I did this for many summers, uh, all through high school, through part of college. And for almost all, it was always new construction. And we would paint the houses all white. That, my dad was convinced they, they're just easier to sell like that. They're, excuse me, eggshell white, right? The ceiling was a different color, but it was all white. And we, we would paint, I remember one summer, we painted nine houses, nine new houses, side by side by side by side by side, right? That's a... It's a lot of of painting. I spent hundreds of hours painting. I used all the tools. I didn't spray much, but, you know, I would use a roller. I would use a brush, obviously, not that there's many tools. And I suppose if you can be good at painting, uh, I suppose I'm good at painting. Uh, I can cut, cut in. I can do lines without having tape. and, And don't call me to come paint your house. This is just a sermon illustration. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Um, my phone doesn't work. Uh, but so I, I suppose you could say that I'm a good painter, but you would not want me to paint a painting for you, right? We, we get the difference? Because there's another kind of painter, the, the kind of painter who paints, <laughs> I paint white walls, then there are painters that paint things, right? Uh, an, animals and, and abstract art and, and landscapes. Uh, it's, it's totally different. There's far more detail, and really there's quite a few more, more tools. My mother-in-law, Haley's mom, is, uh, is an artist, a painter, and she's painted some beautiful landscapes, and we have some of those in our home, and I've seen her studio. Uh, she has all different kinds of brushes, right? Big ones and small ones for, for, the de- uh, for the detail, and some are really, really small. They're teeny. And it's a principle that's helpful for us to understand that sometimes it is helpful to paint with a big brush, like a roller or a three-inch purdy, right? But then other times it's helpful to paint with like a, like, like a watercolor brush, something that is, that is small. In one case, you don't worry about details at all. There are no details on this finely painted wall. But if you look at one of my mother-in-law's landscape paintings, there are lots of details and lots of colors and the details matter. The same thing is true with the Bible, I think. We're always concerned about the truth and the exact truth. So so truth always matters down to the detail, but sometimes truth is grasped easier in big categories and sometimes it's grasped better in small categories. Sometimes precision isn't as important and you can brush with large strokes, but then sometimes you need to zoom in and focus on the details. Tonight we're painting with a small brush, okay? We're zooming in to fill in some of the details about the new covenant 
and the nature of the new covenant. Now, due to the summer schedule, we've been kind of hit or miss, but uh, we've been talking, Mark talked about this last week and, and then the week before, we've been talking about the nature of the new covenant, and it's, you know, it's, this is a Bible word, it's Bible language, and, you know, we're kind of Bible people and, and church people, and, and so it's a word we might hear a lot, and we might even use a lot, but I'm, you know, not sure how well we understand it. Right? Can we just be honest? You don't have to be honest with me, but I'll, well, you know, right? I mean, again, so this is a test I would use. If I gave you an index card and said, write down everything you know about the new covenant, would you need another index card? Right? That, that sort of thing. Um, the New Testament is talking about it a lot. We've talked about this in the past. It's constantly talking about a new covenant and an old covenant. We've read before Hebrews chapter 7 where it says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The idea is that if one covenant is better than another covenant, then there's multiple covenants in view and they're different in some sort of way, right? The new covenant is superior to the old one. But the question that we're trying to ask and the question I want to encourage you to listen to and listen for is how is it better? That's what we're trying to do. We're spending multiple weeks on this question. How is the new covenant better? Another way to ask it is what is new about the new covenant? In four weeks, when we're done with this, if we finish in four weeks, I would love to grab you in the hallway and say, hey, why don't you sit towards the front of church? I'm just kidding. And then say, hey, what is new about the new covenant? And you would have something to say, right? That would, I'm not going to do that to anybody except for maybe Benny because of the markers. Um, but he can answer, I know. Uh, that's what we're trying to, trying to ask. Again, I was talking with my mother-in-law. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. She's coming this weekend. Um, I love her. Uh, I was talking with her last weekend or so about iPhones, right? Um, I'm sort of the tech support for my family. Again, don't call me for tech support or painting. Uh, but, uh, you know, I kind of do that for, for my family. And, and she's having problems with her phone because her iPhone uh, is, is, is outdated. It's like significantly outdated. And I was trying to explain, I was trying to persuade her that she needed to spend hundreds of dollars on a new iPhone, uh, which she was not excited about. And I was trying to explain the difference in the models, right? Have you done this before? Uh, you talk to some, some, some geek squad and they start talking about the differences in phone 4 and phone 5 and you have no, all you can tell is like one costs a lot more uh, or yours, yours isn't working. And, you know, I was explaining it to her and she had no idea what I was talking about. All right? She didn't care that one had a 381 PPI display while another one had uh, an A11 Bionic chip or another one had a 12 megapixel camera, right? She didn't care about any of that stuff. But as soon as I started saying, you see your phone? You see my phone? I don't have the newest one, but I have a new, newer than hers, right? I would say, your phone has an A8 chip. Mine has an A11 chip. Neither of us know what an A anything chip is, but we know 11 is better than 8, right? Nod with me if you're, if you're awake, right? Uh, your camera has a 1.2 megapixel camera. Mine has a 12 megapixel camera, right? Yours has a 4. Okay, I'm, I think I made the point, right? This is why online sometimes you can say compare 
compare models. And that, that's really helpful because suddenly what happened for my mother-in-law is her iPhone 6 was not as interesting and not as exciting as the newest iPhone, whatever that is. XR, whatever, right? Uh, when it came out, the iPhone 6 was great. There were people waiting in line for it all night. But now it's, you know, it barely works. They're both iPhones, but one is better, right? That's how it is with the new, that's how it is with the covenants. The new covenant and the old covenant have a lot of things in common. They both have an A something chip in them, right? But one is different and one is better. Some things are significantly upgraded. Some things are entirely different. But there is a lot of commonality and there's some differences. But the difference you need to understand is in the details. If you look at them side by side, if you look at them, like if you have eyes like me, you may not be able to see the difference. It's not until you get into the details. Remember, the fine brush. And that's why we need the small brush. Last week, or last time, whenever that was, we focused on the first new covenant reality. The first major upgrade, right? The first way that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. In case you forgot or weren't here, let me just remind you. The first thing we saw is that in the new covenant, God's people will have, who remembers, new new hearts, right? New hearts. You remember Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, okay? Remember in the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, God is, God's people had God's law, and that's a blessing. But it was written on what? It was written on stones. It was written on tablets that were external. And as we know, hearing God's words does not make you want to obey God's words, does it? Right? Think about Israel's history. <laughs> Wasn't effective in that regard. And so in the new covenant, God comes along, he says, okay, there's a heart problem, fine. I'll give you new hearts. I will provide new hearts. And that's what God does. He gives hearts of flesh that are made alive by God's spirit. God's law in the new covenant is not written on stones, but it's written within our very hearts. And what that means practically, because that would be very painful, I suppose, if that was literal. What that means is there is a desire in us to obey. Christians want to obey God. Yeah, I don't just mean you say you want to obey, but you, when you are private, in, in, in the private privacy of your home, when no one is watching, right, you have a desire to obey God. God gives you that. He makes us want to obey. He enables us to obey, and he actually ensures that we will obey in the long run. That's what it means to have a new heart. That's upgrade number one. Tonight, we're going to look at upgrade number two. Here's the summary, okay? In the new covenant, all of God's people will be born again. All of God's people will be born again. Another way to put it is that every new covenant member will be born again or have new life, right? This is the doctrine, if you like fancy $5 words, it's the doctrine of regeneration, now, just by looking at your faces, you might be thinking, duh, right? Of course, Christians are, are born again. 
That may not sound very distinctive, but remember, tonight we're working with a small brush. Imagine that the difference in the Mona Lisa and some other woman is like very small brush strokes, right? Very, very subtle. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31. It's the same text that we were in before. Again, we're only going to look at a portion of it because it is so rich. Jeremiah 31, and I'll read the, the, the larger, the four-verse section, um, and then we'll, we'll zoom in on 34. This is a prophecy, and it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Okay? We've already done that one. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And listen carefully. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray one more time. Father, we've heard your word, and we want to grasp these rich blessings. We hear truth that feels beyond us, and if we pay attention, Lord, we, we know that this can be a major blessing for us. So I pray that you would give understanding. We recognize there's nothing magical in these words. It comes with understanding. And that is a gift from you. So Spirit of God, open our hearts as we have sung. Help us to see the glory of Christ, particularly in the new covenant. I pray that my teaching tonight would be clear. Clear so that people would see your truth as, as it is in your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. I want to draw your attention especially to verse 34, okay? Look carefully at this one. It's probably the one that was the hardest to understand in this paragraph. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Okay, you'll notice that the main idea of, of this verse here centers around the phrase, Knowing God. Did you see that? It appears twice. No longer say, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. Now, you probably know this, but most of the time in the Bible, knowing is not about trivia. It's not about possessing information, right? It is about possessing relationship. It's not about knowledge and facts and details as much as it is relationship and intimacy. And particularly, this is about a relationship with who? The Lord. Knowing the Lord. And think about it. That, that's the whole point of covenant, isn't it? You may, have, you may be lost, but we've been spending the last couple months talking about the covenants of the Bible, which, as Mark said last week, the whole point of covenant is relationship. Right? It's relationship between God and man. All of God's covenant interactions have the goal of relationship. This is often 
uh, summarized in the Bible with this refrain that you've probably heard, heard before, where the Bible, all throughout the Bible, we read, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's called the covenant refrain. That's, whenever you see that, you know that God is, he's making a move. He has a plan. He's taking the initiative for relationship. I think this is important for us to remember in our Christian lives that as we listen to sermons, right? Y'all are the Wednesday night crowd. You, 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 I suppose, like hearing sermons. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you like it when Mark provides sermons. I don't know, right? But, but you like sermons. We, we read our Bibles. We, we listen. We learn. You might read books and that sort of thing. But we have to remember that the goal is relationship. We are always to seek relationship over information. Is it good to learn about God? Yes. Is it good to know facts and details and trivia about the Bible? Yes. Is it good to know theology? Yes. Trust me. But what's the point if you don't know it to know God? To, to know him, right? to enjoy a relationship with him. I bet Satan could beat you in Bible trivia, right? I bet that he knows a lot of true theology, but that is not the point, is it? In the new covenant, every member will know the Lord. We are to be a people who know him. Now you'll notice, okay, there's something distinctive about this and we've got to figure that out. But you'll notice that the words that are used here are comprehensive. They shall all know me. You see that? All. And then it's more specific. From the least to the greatest. Everyone. They shall all know me. It's not just Moses, the guy who saw God, who, in the back of God, who talked to God, who went to the tent of meeting, right? The place where you meet with God. Not just the priest who intercessed, uh, who were intercessors for God. Not just the prophets who spoke for God. All of the new covenant members will know, that is, have a relationship with God. So the question, obviously, is what is different about this? Right? Like, like what is different? Well, in the old covenant, I mean, it's like, didn't they know God? Like, he went ahead of them by a pillar of fire at night. He crossed the Red Sea. Like, didn't, didn't they know God? Like, didn't they know God? Well, some of them did, but not all of them did. Not all of them did. They may have known about God. I'm sure they certainly knew about God. Every time they celebrated the Passover, they knew about God. But that does not mean they knew God, right? Now, in the Old Covenant, in the Covenant of Israel, the Covenant of Abraham, in order to be a part of the people of God, how did you get in? You had to be born in. Right? To be a part of the covenant community, you had to be born into that community, Fancy theologians, like Mark, who like fancy words, call this the genealogical principle, right? The principle uh, that explains it. You, that is, you are a covenant member, you are a part of the people of God, if you are a child of Abraham, right? You can see, this is a big deal in the Bible. Jesus argued about this all the time. Paul talked about this all the time, right? 
And to be a part, or to be a child of Abraham, you're either born into that, and in that case, circumcision is the only requirement. That, that was part of God's covenant with Abraham, that, that he would bless his descendants. But just because you were born into the people of God doesn't mean you had a relationship with God. One way to think about this is to think about the way the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God was not given to everyone, right? He was not given indiscriminately. The Spirit of God was given at specific places to specific people for specific purposes, right? Uh, the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and then what happened? He left, right? The Holy Spirit would come upon prophets. He would come upon priests. He would come upon kings like Saul or, or David. He would even come upon judges like Samson or craftsmen to build the temple. But he was not given to all. He was not given to the least. Moses, a man who knew God, this is the next text up here, in Numbers chapter 11 lamented this. He groaned that not all the people had the Spirit of God. Listen, listen as I read this, right? Just log this away. We'll come back to this. He said this, Would that all of the Lord's people be prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Okay, did you hear that? He's crying out, If only all of God's people could have God's Spirit. You can hear the longing in his voice. Moses was leading the people of God, but the people of God didn't know God. Isn't that tragic? And he longed for the day when every person would have his spirit. You could be a member of the covenant community and not know the Lord. We could list dozens of examples. Just think of King Saul, the one who had the spirit of God, and yet at the end of his life we see him on the way to visit the witch of Endor, right? Just think about all the times that God brought judgment on his people. He, that he brought them into exile. It was not because they were following him. It's not because they had his spirit. There were plenty of people. Plenty of God's people who didn't know the Lord. They were physically, they were physically circumcised. But they were not spiritually circumcised. That is not just a New Testament idea. That's why Moses told the people of Israel. He said, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Right? No longer be stubborn. And then he gives them a list of all the things to obey the Lord. Not everyone knew the Lord. And now this is why they had to be taught. Okay? If you, if you turn to Numbers, go back to Jeremiah 31. That's where you need to be. Because remember, the text said in verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, because they shall all know me. Now, is this text... Uh, saying that we don't need teachers, right? Okay, thank you, because I would have to find a new job, right? Now, is this saying that the church, that new covenant people do not need teachers or need teaching? Of course not. I mean, the New Testament makes it clear. Teaching is a primary function of the church when it gathers, right? That pastors, part of their qualification, in fact, the difference in a pastor and a deacon is a pastor can teach, that's the difference. The character is supposed to be the same, basically. All right, elders must be able to teach. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when you see this picture of the early church, we read about fellowship and, and taking communion and, and prayer. But what were they doing? They were listening to the preaching, to the teaching of the apostles, 
Right? Were the apostles wasting their time? No. Teaching is central for the Christian life and for the church. The point was not that no one would need to teach anymore. The point was that they don't need to be taught to know the Lord. You hear the difference? Like this is the whole point tonight, right? It's not that they don't need to be taught about the Lord. They don't need to be taught to know the Lord. No longer will anyone say to his brother, know the Lord. What that means is this. No member of the new covenant community will need to be evangelized. He or she will not need to be instructed how to know God. Why? They already know God, right? That's what it means to be a part of the new covenant. But okay, this brings up the question, how is this different from the old? Well, remember, in the old covenant, there were some who knew God and some who didn't. Now, this is, this might be, this is where we as Baptists disagree strongly with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, right? A little bit of uh, denominational doctrine for you, right? So our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, uh, they believe that baptism, right, the New Testament idea of baptism replaces or continues the Old Testament concept of circumcision, right? And so in the Old Testament, they would baptize their babies, the boys, right? It's one of my big questions for Presbyterians. Don't girls get, ba- whatever, right? Um, right? So they would baptize infants into the covenant community because in the old covenant, they circumcised infants into the, new co- into the old covenant community. Of course, that doesn't mean they're saved, but they have a special status. Well, I would, talk, I would say to my Presbyterian friends, you need to reread verse 34 because specifically it says there are in the new covenant no new covenant members who need to be taught to know the Lord. Well, a child that has been baptized as an eight-day-old needs to be taught to know the Lord. And baptism is what ushers him or her into the community. So that doesn't fit. To be, to be a member of the old covenant, you had to be circumcised in the flesh. But to be a member of the new covenant, you need to be circumcised in the heart. An eight-day-old baby doesn't, can't do that, right? The difference is the circumcision of the heart. Now, let's think about this from the new. Are y'all with me so far? I know this. I don't know any other way to do this, right? God's word is deep, and so sometimes we got to swim in the deep, right? Um, but let's think about this in, in the New Testament. This major change that is the entry into the people of God, how it is that in the new covenant you become a part of the family of God, it shows up all over the place in the New Testament. I really hope you're tracking with this because you'll see it everywhere. If you, if you listen, just think of uh, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, right? What was the conversation about? You must be born again. The whole context of that conversation is this very context. Being born of Abraham is not the point. And Nicodemus, of course, he's like, well, what do you mean? I got to go back into my mother's womb. And be, he, he, he didn't get it. Right? He was thinking about the genealogical principle. right? And so when Jesus told him, it doesn't matter if you're born a Jew, you need to be born again. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus highlighted the importance of the role of the Spirit, right? Did everyone in the Old Covenant have the Spirit? No, right? And they could lose him. 
But in the new covenant, the Spirit is always a part of new birth. Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay, that's circumcision language. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you see Jesus comparing there's a physical circumcision, a physical birth, a physical status, and there's a spiritual circumcision, a spiritual birth, a spiritual status. Again, shows up all over the New Testament. One place I learned about this just recently is in 1 John. I do want you to turn there. 1 John chapter 2. I should turn there. Okay, now while you're turning, uh, one of the purpose that First John, one of the major purposes he was writing was to give these Christians assurance. To help them know how it is that they can be sure that they are Christians, right? He said, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John 5, 1 John 5. John, John is saying, hey, I want you to know, I want you Christians to understand this is how you can be sure that you're a child of God. Not a child of Abraham, but a child of God. Now, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 27. Okay, look at these words closely. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. Do any of these words ring a bell? Right? Okay. First of all, you see anointing. What, what, what does that make you think of? The spirit. Right? This is spiritual birth language. And then, of course, definitely should have gotten this one. You no longer have a need to be taught. Does... Does that sound familiar? Right? His anointing, right? The Spirit, the, the presence of the Spirit teaches you everything that you need. Now, okay, John is not saying that you don't need to be taught. What is John doing in, in this letter? He's teaching, right? Like that's what First John is. It's, a, it's instruction. What, is, what he's doing is he's saying, if you know the context of First John, he's saying, hey, don't listen to the antichrists. Don't listen to the people who don't understand the identity of Jesus. Don't listen to what they say because you, Christian, have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God has already revealed all that you need to know. You see it perhaps more clearly in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. You see that? Chapter 2, verse 20. John is explicitly He's explicitly referring back to this Jeremiah 31 promise. He's saying, you know the Christ. And the only way you know the Christ is because the Spirit has revealed him to you. You're born of the Spirit. That's the only way. And by knowing Christ, you can know who? God. That's how you're saved. So you don't need to be instructed, right? Because God has already revealed Christ to you, you already know, right, intimacy language, you know God. That's why Jesus said in his teaching, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? Now there's one more piece of this that we need to circle back and understand before we can start the application. I want to do application, and that's, that's the role of the Spirit, 
the neglected member of the Trinity, right? Um, we sang tonight, we want to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus, right? He, he gets all the attention. Um, but the Spirit is who dwells among us. Um, now, do you remember, don't turn there, but you remember in Numbers what Moses was longing for. He was longing that all members of the covenant community, all of God's people, would have God's spirit on them. Now, we need to turn to another important place, and that's Joel chapter 2. We've got two more texts. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay, you've probably heard this. Uh, you're probably familiar with this. Joel chapter 2. Does this sound familiar? It shall, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, on those days I will pour out my spirit. Joel has read Moses. He is picking up on Moses's longing. He is anticipating a day, a later, a future day, where this will happen. Again, you will notice how indiscriminate this language is. Who will the Spirit be poured out on? All flesh, right? Sons and daughters, male and female, young and old, even the servants get in on the blessing. Everyone the point is that everyone will have access to God because everyone will have access to the Spirit. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. Hopefully you anticipated this move. Acts chapter 2, while you're turning there, who knows what takes place in Acts chapter 2? What event? Pentecost, right? Very good. Pentecost, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And when the Spirit comes, Peter does what any, any good person would do. He stands up to preach, right? He preaches a sermon, and the text that he chooses is, guess what? Joel chapter 2. Does this sound familiar? Acts chapter 2, 16. He even says this, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay. This is fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, look, I know we've, we've used a small brush. That's lots of details. That can make your head hurt. But the details matter. In the New Covenant, they matter. To be a part of, let me try to summarize for you, okay? So if you've been drowning, let me throw you a lifeline, right? To summarize, to be a part of the people of God in the New Covenant, you are not born into it. You are not born into it, and you're not circumcised. You have to be born again. And for those who are born again, they are born by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God by which we have access to God. 
than anyone, male or female, Jew or Greek, young or old, not just the Jews, not just the priests, not just the pastors, not just the Sunday school teachers. Everyone can have access to God by the Spirit. All of God's people will know God personally. They don't need a priest, right? They don't need to go to the temple or the tabernacle. They don't have to be near the mountain where the presence of God descends. No, in the new covenant, God's people will know God because God himself dwells among them by his spirit. In the person of Jesus, God tabernacled. He dwelled among us. And when he left, he left his spirit. He sent his spirit. Do you remember he told his disciples, it's better that I leave? And they're like, wait, what? How could it possibly be better that Jesus leaves? And he says, so that the Spirit comes. So how is the Spirit better than Jesus? Well, Jesus is in the flesh. And he's bound by space and time. He's in one place. The Spirit of God can dwell in all of us. It's it's better that he left. And through the Spirit... It's not just the disciples who can know God because they saw him or heard his words. It's not just the people who were healed by him or saw him raised from the dead or saw the miracles. But we can all know God by his spirit. Now I know that this can be deep, but this is what God has revealed to us. His word is deep because his beauty is so elaborate. Can you imagine if, uh, if he was shallow, there'd only be a few sermons to preach. There'd only be a few books to read. There'd only be a few things to learn, a few things to experience. But God's beauty is infinitely deep. So we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes we're swimming in the deep end. But I want to make some application for us. The first is this. The new birth is a supernatural event, not an intellectual event. Okay? It's a supernatural event, not an intellectual event. I think many well-meaning preachers and revivalists and evangelists and Christians and Sunday school teachers have accidentally made the gospel sound easy. That is, they say something like, hey, just make the decision and ask Jesus into your heart. It's a free gift, right? All you have to do is accept it. It'll be the best decision that you have ever made. All you have to do is accept it. But that's pretty de- that can be deceiving, right? Because you don't just have to believe. You have to be born again. And that's something you don't control. That is a work of God. Here's what I mean. You cannot believe without changing. Transformation must happen. You don't get the benefits of salvation without changing who you worship. You can't worship yourself and gain the benefits of Christ. To be a Christian means you change who you worship. You change your allegiance. You stop worshiping yourself. You stop worshiping your hobbies and whatever your thing is. And you start worshiping the Lord as the Lord. If you're going to trust in Jesus, right? Just trust him. Well, you actually have to trust him. You actually have to do some trusting, right? Yes, All you need is faith to be saved. All you need is belief. But belief actually believes. 
And that means people change. It's the work of the Spirit. And this is done through the preaching of the gospel. This is incredible. Think about it. People hear the gospel. Someone speaks the gospel. People hear the gospel. God calls them. And those who are appointed to salvation come to life by the work of the Spirit. They are born again. The wind blows where it pleases. The Spirit of God blows where he pleases. They're born again. It's a work of God. Number two. Don't assume that people know God unless there's fruit. Don't assume that people know God unless there's fruit. Just because people say they know Jesus doesn't mean they know Jesus, right? That's old covenant talk. Just because they profess to be a Christian does not mean that they are born again. It's a phrase that has fallen out of uh, social graces, but it is a, we're going to keep it because it's Bible, right? There are people all around us. There are people in our church, I'm sure of it, who need to be instructed how to know God. One application of this is that we need to evangelize our children. We need to evangelize our grandchildren. Do not assume that because your child or grandchild or or friend's child or whoever grows up in the church that that they bear the fruit of salvation. We need to share the gospel with our children until their lives bear the fruit of salvation, is what I meant to say. Growing up in church is not enough. We need to share the gospel with our children. If if your kids or if your grandkids have made professions of faith, wonderful. If your spouse has made a profession of faith, wonderful. But professions do not save. What saves is faith, real faith, and real faith works. So constantly teach them, constantly remind them, constantly encourage them what a true relationship with God looks like. We're holding that out for our children time and time again. A third way of application, and this moves much more broadly and is closely connected to this, is that the new covenant helps us understand and examine ourselves, right? It helps us understand who's really saved. Remember what we've learned that in the old covenant, because of circumcision, if I, I, I guess this is a little crude, but a male could like literally check and see if he's in the, in the covenant community, right? He could see if he's physically circumcised. That's how he could tell. It's not so easy in the new covenant, right? Because the circumcision of the heart is invisible, But the doctrine of new birth, of regeneration, tells us how we can find circumcised hearts. Do you know how you can identify a circumcised heart? It's a heart that knows God. Remember, they will all know me. You won't need to instruct them. They know me. You know God. Friends, can you look at the dimension of your life and find evidence of a relationship with God? Can, do, you see, do you see evidence of all that a relationship entails? Just, just think of it. Not, not knowledge, but relationship. Just think about a relationship. I mean, how would you know if I have a relationship with my wife? Right? You'd see us talking. Right? We would interact together. Would we spend time together? Do we communicate? Do we know things about each other? Yeah, that's helpful. But like the point isn't knowledge. The point is intimacy. It's Friendship. 
It's love. What evidence is there in your life that you have a relationship with God? Do you listen to him? You can imagine what would happen in my marriage if I did not listen to my wife. I fell asleep in a conversation once. Do you think that went well for me? New. The next morning I woke up and she's like sitting over me like in the bed. She, do you remember last night? No. You fell asleep sitting up in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> right? That, that is not good for a relationship. Does God speak to you? Do you listen to him? Do you spend time with him? Do you talk with him? I mean, is not like the quality of relationship like is not communication just like foundational to it? I mean, how do you even have a relationship if you don't communicate? Do you have intimacy? Is he interesting to you? I talk to people all the time and they say, I'm just bored by the Bible. That says so much about your walk with the Lord. If the Bible bores you, God bores you. Your relationship is in poor health. Is he exciting to you? Is he interesting to you? If God were to go away, how long would it take you to notice? Would it make you sad? Or would it be sad if something interfered with your relationship? Do you care about hurting him and grieving him? Do you avoid behaviors that grieve him? Signs of relationship. If not, if none of those things are true... Friend, you probably need to be instructed to know the Lord. You probably, even though you're among us in this new covenant context, you probably need to be instructed to know the Lord through the gospel. In fact, that's one of the marks of the Christian. A Christian actually knows what the gospel is and can explain it. That is, you understand the terms of your relationship with God. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the terms by which you are able to relate to God. One of, my, one of my favorite things to do, I get to do a lot, is I get to talk to people about their relationship with God. And all the time, I will ask a question like this. I'll say, tell me what you mean about the gospel. What is the gospel? And I cannot tell you how often people leave out the cross. They leave out repentance. They leave out sin, wrath, faith. People even leave out Jesus. If you, don't under, if you don't know these, if you don't include these things in the gospel, you don't have the gospel. And how in the world can you have the confidence that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ if you cannot even articulate one coherent paragraph about the gospel? Not to mention, how, you're never going to lead anyone to, to Christ. If you can't explain the gospel, no one can be saved. Not through your ministry. If you don't know what the gospel is, and you don't know, you may not know the God it speaks of. And you certainly can't know the salvation it provides. We're going to wrap up in just a minute, but just maybe something to encourage you with. Um, be sure that you can identify all the essential components of the gospel from memory. Do the index card test, right? And practice it. Practice sharing it. I've put some of my favorite tracks there in the back on the way out that you can grab. Um, and, and it's got all the essential components. You don't have to learn it exactly how it has it, but it has all the components that are there so that you can know the gospel. And yes, the, the new covenant helps us answer the question, do we know God? Um, 
Real quick, I'll just I'll wrap up with this. I know I'm getting a little excited tonight. Sorry. Um, a, a final way, if you want to know if you're if you're a member of the new covenant, is do you see evidence of the Spirit in your life? The Spirit has specific fruit, and God's Spirit will be active. So is your life marked by the fruit of His presence? When you sin, are you convicted, right? The Spirit convicts. Do you desire to glorify God? Because that's what the Spirit is interested in. And do you have that desire? Does your new heart desire to see the glory of God spread? And if you do, there's two things that will happen. Number one, you will share the gospel. If you don't share the gospel... You do not have much desire to see God's glory spread. And number two, you will pray that that glory will spread. We should be people who care about what happens in Zambia and North Korea. Not for political purposes primarily, but for kingdom purposes. There are people there who need to know the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God. I'll leave the other applications for another day. I'm sorry. Let's close in prayer by celebrating and thanking God that we have a new and better covenant in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have sought us, saved us, given us new hearts. And Father, though we still reside in the flesh and our hearts don't always function as they should, we eagerly await the day where where we will see you face to face and sin will have no more power and appeal to us. We pray, O God, that your glory would spread and that you would use us to be a people by your spirit to share this gospel that one must be born again to know God. We thank you for this privilege through Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.